Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Please welcome Hal Hartley. Uh, thanks for coming. Uh, I just want to uh, point out that David and I went to uh, college together, went to film school together. And when we were at college, he was doing similar things. He was programming all the films that we saw on campus through the student senate. Uh, so I actually owe a lot to David for most of the films I saw when I started to watch films closely. If I didn't see them in class, I saw them uh, in the evening at the uh, student senate courtesy David Schwartz. Uh, start with the Long Island questions. Um, there's a movement, especially um, now through amateur, which is off Long Island completely, um, f from your student films to amateur, kind of a movement off of Long Island. The presence of the Long Island Railroad is very evident in trust and unbelievable truth. What was the link for you um, between growing up and leaving Long Island, both for yourself and also in your films? How does it fit into your films? <laughs> well, it... Practically, it was just the only place I could make films. I was living there when I began to make films, but even when I was at uh, college in upstate New York, mm -hmm. when I had to make a film project, I would invariably go back to Lindenhurst because there were, uh, there were just environments that I could control, which is something I learned very early about um, most of the time when you go out to shoot and you don't get everything you wanted Mm -hmm. to shoot, it's because you don't have control over the environment. So, uh, my, you know, I grew up, you know, on a street where a lot of Hartleys lived. You know, <laughs> they all had houses, different ones, and backyards, and uh, even, you know, I had a lot of cousins I could use as extras. So. <laughs> uh, it was also just a supportive kind of environment, too. Mm -hmm. uh, but Still, when, you know, when it came time to make films that were, were not student films, and um, there was still a little bit of that. The Unbelievable Truth, I don't think I could have uh, put together for that amount of money in any other kind of environment. I actually wrote it for the street. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up on, not that it needed to portray that street, but I knew that I could shoot a scene in my father's backyard while the electricians were setting up a scene in mm -hmm. my uncle's backyard. <laughs> we, I mean, we shot like 20 pages a day. Mm -hmm. um, then with trust, it just seemed, you know, I had been writing, you know, that old adage, I don't know, I think Steinbeck, Steinbeck said it, and just write about what you know. Since I, at that point, I had spent most of my life there, that's what I knew. Mm -hmm. um, I knew about my frustration of, living in the town I grew up in, as well as the little joys that mm -hmm. I had. So um, that was sort of natural. Things like the Long Island Railroad, you know, living on an island and a railroad that takes you off the island is a significant thing. <laughs> Ever since I was a kid, that was significant to me that mm -hmm. in the neighborhood I grew up in anyway. Uh, all the men got on that train in the morning and went to New York City to work and then they came back in the evening and all those kids and the, 
and housewives, you mm -hmm. know, stayed. Mm -hmm. As a seven-year-old, that was significant to me. I wondered, where do they go? <laughs> uh, as I got older, it was more important because uh, I began to understand that that railroad wasn't just way off this island, but to other railroads that would take you <laughs> to other places. You know, it, was, it was the way off in the most concrete of terms. And so I've always used it that way. I've always used the Long Island Railroad as a, a symbol. Mm -hmm. And they keep chasing me off the platform <laughs> every time. <laughs> I've never yet gotten a uh, permit? permit to shoot. <laughs> and, and they always send the police. <laughs> um, you made Simple Men set on Long Island but shot in Texas. Um, what was it like, kind of artistically, being, being able to cr recreate a role from scratch and not actually being on Long Island but setting a film there? Well, it wasn't that hard, really. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, we have to face facts. Long Island <laughs> looks just like every place else in the world, <laughs> at least in America. It doesn't, you know, a suburb here and a suburb in two hours outside of Houston, Texas, look exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And it's flat. I had known that from traveling um, in Texas before that uh, it was flat, like much of Long Island is flat, and the foliage is pretty much the same. So when it became an issue that uh, I wasn't going to be able to shoot Simple Man in New York. Uh, I figured, mm -hmm. let's go to Texas. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have to work as quickly in Texas. And the light, the daylight is a lot longer uh, <coughs> in Texas, maybe because it's further south. It's that mm. particular time of the year. But um, for me, it's the film of mine that is the most nature film. It's bucolic. It's, mm -hmm. it's a pastoral. Uh, I remember, you know, more than the other films, like looking at the landscape a lot. Even, you know, watching it today, I haven't seen this in about two years, but you know, seeing that shot of uh, Dennis coming up the street towards the place where he sees Elena, that's a, you know, that's not the kind of shot you see in my films much. You know, it shows a lot. <laughs> it shows it deep and it shows it wide. Mm -hmm. uh, without putting up a wide-angle lens, it's still a 50. Mm -hmm. But it shows a lot of the landscape, which um, a combination of circumstance and inclination uh, with the earlier films kept me from doing that. To go back to Unbelievable Truth for a minute, because this was your transitional film out of, out of school and um, continued in some ways what you were doing in your filmmaking. Purchase. How were you able to get it made? How were you able to get that project off the ground? And then, kind of a second tangential question: Do you think about what would happen if you had never made that? I mean, where, where uh -huh. you might have wound yeah. up. <laughs> um, well, if I hadn't made the unbelievable truth, I probably just would have made some other film. Mm -hmm. You know, because if fun things clear to me now, I was put on this earth to make films. <laughs> I've never done anything so consistently. And, mm -hmm. Uh, because there was a time was when I wasn't that sure if filmmaking was what I should be doing. But, uh, well, you know, I had been making a lot of short films. And The Unbelievable Truth was something that I had planned to do in 16 millimeter feature length, but 16 millimeter for $20,000. And then, you know, my uh, employer at the time, uh, who was going to sign... Uh, co-sign a, a loan 
I was taking mm -hmm. out to do that. He suggested that I try to do another budget for the same project that would let me do it in 35, so that it would be a viable commercial product. Um, and I did, and that came out to about 60,000. And then he got the money. He just put up the money. He, his company had some money, and they invested it. Mm -hmm. uh, so if that didn't happen, I, I probably just would have made the unbelievable truth in 16 millimeter, first mm -hmm. of all, which has actually become a lot more popular with uh, first-time filmmakers mm -hmm. now. A 16 millimeter uh, feature-length film is no longer a complete non non-entity as far as a commercial product, mm -hmm. which is good. It's encouraging. Um, in, in school, you know, when you're in film school, you take for granted that you make your own films as a kind of personal expression. I mean, Purchase was definitely a school where nobody was making calling card films. Nobody was making the kind of films that would land them in Hollywood. But to be able to continue doing that, making films that continue uh, your personal themes and ideas, but there aren't too many directors who are able to keep doing that. You know, even filmmakers like Scorsese go, um, go back and forth between commercial and personal projects. So could you talk a bit about how you're able to maintain that? Uh, so, well, first off, I mean, it seems a little miraculous to me. <laughs> um, but realistically, I mean, it's just money. Mm -hmm. I don't make a lot of money. <laughs> if you don't want a lot of money, people will let you do anything you want. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and uh, that's not to say that you know Martin Scorsese you know makes a lot of money and insists on a lot of money. I think his interests are very different too. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I knew what my interests were, and I had to admit that they didn't require a lot of money. Mm -hmm. um, so as long as I made reasonably profitable films with reasonable budgets, mm -hmm. you know, it has not been a problem. That's the dynamic, you know. Mm -hmm. How much money you need, what do you want to do? You know, your integrity <laughs> is over here as you see it, mm -hmm. and then how much money do you want to maintain your integrity? If you want $40 million to maintain your integrity, <laughs> you know, people will be a lot slower in coming with investment. Right. <laughs> In, um, in some of the scenes we just looked at, uh, from Unbelievable Truth and Trust, there are uh, very clear statements from the characters, kind of philosophical statements. I mean, Audrey talking about how life is just deals, mm -hmm. and then the, the dialogue and trust about um, love and respect and admiration. You've been able to create a style of, in writing and directing where these kind of statements can be expressed overtly, um, which... Is a, you know it's dangerous to, to get into that area you know the danger of becoming heavy-handed, so I wonder if you could talk about how just how you're able to find the the right tone to express this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Well, comedy helps, <laughs> you know, if you want somebody to say something kind of heavy and to the point, um, unnaturalistically. So you just figure out a way to have a joke right next to it, or to make it part of a joke that's in the process mm -hmm. of being told. Uh, a lot of the people will be saying some kind of <laughs> philosophical crap and, you know, and then eventually it'll turn into a really, you know, just a slapstick kind of thing. Mm -hmm. That said, I mean, I don't... Uh, I think of speaking as action. I think of people having ideas as action. Mm -hmm. Because actions have consequences and so do ideas, you know. As long as I understand why the character is speaking that way, Sometimes mm -hmm. they're, being, they're being jerks. They're being mm -hmm. full of themselves. Sometimes they're 
being really naive. Other mm -hmm. times, uh, they're being very sincere. Yeah. Um, in my experience, watching a character be sincere is probably the most difficult thing for a, an audience to watch, mm. to endure. Sincerity <laughs> is about the hardest thing for any audience <laughs> to, to do. Um, and that interests me. That's why I think I kind of play around with what sincerity looks like, how it expresses itself. Mm -hmm. The characters frequently move back and forth between um, these kind of lofty ideas and then very earthly concerns. Um, so in the well, scene, but you see, that's a way. Yeah. That's one of the ways to uh, so, make the highfalutin dialogue yeah. accept, acceptable by somehow grounding it in, a, yeah. in earthiness and regular, ordinary situations. So, I mean, the seduction scene, um, Josh in Unbelievable Truth really seduces Audrey by talking about how, how gears work and how uh, about Yeah, mechanics. but she's an easy mark. <laughs> <laughs> he, said, he doesn't have to try too hard to seduce that girl at that point. In a lot of ways, the, the women um, in your film are easier to read or easier to, um, it's easier to get inside their heads, where the men in your film tend to be a bit more uh, enigmatic and difficult mm -hmm. to read. So I just wonder if you could talk about kind of different approaches to men and women characters. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's because, I mean, I think most, you know, I don't know. I think the, the men's motives are so obvious they don't need to be <laughs> treated in any special way. Uh, but I think it's also my fascination with women that, you know, mm -hmm. they will be mysterious. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm interested in that. Mm -hmm. um, it can be argued that my treatment of the characters is, is uneven, you know. It's heavier on the, the female characters because I have more questions about the female characters. Mm. I hesitate to just stop there because uh, something like Simple Men really was, a, uh, for me, a reaction to having dealt in the woman's world and trying to understand women so much, um, almost to the exclusion of everything else in the previous mm -hmm. film, in Trust. And then uh, I said, wow, I really I want to concentrate on men a little bit here. And I think the, the way you ask questions about something that you think you un understand a lot mm -hmm. more is different. The kinds of questions you ask will be different. Mm -hmm. Ultimately leads us to the point that, you're, that you've made, which I think is that you know, the women seem more... Well, you said the men seem more enigmatic. I mean, I think the women seem more mysterious, even if I do get into, the, mm -hmm. into their heads. Right. Um, well, maybe they don't. I don't know. We'll ask people later. <laughs> to me, they do. They do. That's why I write about them. But um, I have to see if I uh, cause any kind of illumination. <laughs> the the characters in your films always seem to be trying to t to control their lives, to come up with ways to to control things, control uh, destiny. They're always making deals. Audrey is always making deals, and characters are always um, in in all your films making some sort of deals. At the same time, there's a lot of kind of chance occurrences and things that just come totally out of left field. Um, how much control do you think your characters really do have? <laughs> uh, well, I think they only have control, mm -hmm. really. Uh, it's just when do they realize it? Mm -hmm. uh, I think they have control over their lives a lot more than, you know, it's not just destiny, it's not just really chance. But recognizing that you do have control and doing something about it is usually mm -hmm. what I try to move the stories towards. 
they may, the characters may flounder around a bit, getting into trouble one kind or another before they realize it. Yeah, I think they have a lot of control. Given that, I also don't believe that, that there's any real freedom. Mm-hmm. You know, that they may be looking for freedom. And it's, it's just a wrong approach. You know, we're, we're not free. You know, we're constricted by... That, that's why uh, deals, I think, are yeah. such a useful tool for me. <clears throat> because it illustrates the way in which you don't get anything for nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't have something for nothing. Yeah. To me, that's just the most obvious example of a lack of freedom, fundamentally. You know. mm-hmm. A lot of times the constriction that your characters feel have to, has to do with um, the work that they do. There's a real interest in people. Um, what kind of jobs do people take? And there's a, a sense that the kind of nine-to-five job is very constricting, I mean, especially you know, Martin Donovan's character in Trust, who just you know, couldn't, <laughs> will never work nine-to-five uh-huh. without blowing up the building. That uh-huh. in. in terms of these ideas about control and people deciding what they want to do, how much does this tie into ideas about work and the jobs that people have? Well, I mean, I think, I don't think it has so much to do with nine to five. I mean, mm-hmm. I know plenty of people who work nine to five. I even myself try to work <laughs> nine to five. Uh, the point is, is that doing work that you don't love diminishes you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can get around that any way you want and lie to yourself or whatever, or go out and find yourself a job that you, mm-hmm. that in one way or another doesn't diminish you. I th- yeah, the choice of how we, how we uh, intend to spend the moments of our life is important. It's <laughs> it seems really simple, I guess, but I mean, if I chose to be a hitman, or if I chose to be you know, a drug dealer, mm-hmm. or if I chose to be a priest, um, because it expresses ex- you know your connection to the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know most people don't think this way about employment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, there seems to always be a, a struggle to find that right place. I mean, you have characters who have oh, this... Oh, it certainly uh, is a struggle. That's what I meant yeah. before about there's no yeah. freedom. I mean, yeah. it's, certainly, it's a struggle. So you to have... live is... What does uh, Fritz Lang say in contempt? To live is to suffer. You know, <laughs> to live is to struggle. I mean, you can't get around it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, I do think the only freedom we do have is the, the freedom of choosing what particular struggle we're going to engage in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is it any easier to strive to be um, a poet today, uh, <laughs> in writing like really flowery poetry or something like that that nobody reads mm-hmm. and insisting on that than it is to like uh, try to become a fighter pilot? pilot. Mm-hmm. You know, it's... It's hard, you know. Mm-hmm. If you want, if you want to do it, and you want to do it your way, it's going to be difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, often I, you have characters who seem to be in these dichotomous jobs. I mean, you have um, a, a nun who then winds up a nymphomaniac. You have philosopher mechanics. You have um, p- you know people who seem sp- split in two different directions: mm-hmm. radical terrorist, shortstop. <laughs> yeah. Well, everybody's. <laughs> looking for they're in between jobs. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, well, you know, those people are on the margins. You mm-hmm. know, they're, you know, they're at that moment probably where you know they're deciding that no, I can't keep doing this. I have to do that. 
I think that's when, you know, they're in a crisis. You know, people are more interesting when they're in a crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, you, know, you never see movies about people who are completely content, <laughs> <laughs> who have no wants. You know? um, speaking of, of malcontents, I want to ask about Martin Donovan, who there's some, you, you tend to work with the, um, the same people over and over, and he's somebody who, who seemed to become an alter ego, I mean, starting with your second film. Mm -hmm. and I know you said um, that Amateur you know, might be the last film you do with him for a while, but mm -hmm. he seems to really um, just be perfect in your films, just kind of straightforward, deadpan approach on the outside, but mm -hmm. a lot going on to the surface. So yeah. Can you talk about like, kind of how you started, with, how you found him. Well, just, just through casting, mm -hmm. I'd seen uh, a play that he was in at Cucaracha Theater Company, which is a, um, a theater company down in Tribeca. And uh, I thought he was pretty good. I thought he was. It was very probable that he could work with me well. Mm -hmm. I talked to him, and it was still a year before uh, I had him come in and read for Matthew. And uh, I think what drew me to him was that I recognized a, a common rage that's suppressed and common ways of suppressing it. And, you know, Martin is a very kind, you know, mm -hmm. quiet person. But, you know, when he wants to be enraged, and the way he'll talk about rage is <laughs> exciting. <laughs> you know? um, when we made trust, we recognized that, yeah, we had that in common. It was funny because a lot of times it's, it's mystery about the actor that keeps me wanting to work with them. It's not mm -hmm. just comfort. Mm -hmm. um, because really, Martin is not a comfortable person to work with. He's very <laughs> demanding. He's extremely self-critical. Uh, yeah, he's really he's a great actor. Mm -hmm. I think uh, it's not easy to work with him, though. Mm -hmm. um, again, but you know, we choose to struggle that way rather than... Mm -hmm. You know, get somebody who just fit it nice and easy and mm -hmm. not give me a hard time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and he does. I, I like watching Martin on the screen. I mean, he expresses, uh, you know, mysterious rage that I feel. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not qualified to, to act out. <laughs> he, in amateur, he plays you know, a character with amnesia. In all of the previous three features, characters are always trying to escape their past. Usually it has to do with their parents, they're trying to escape their parents, or some secret in the past. Could you talk about this, how this comes to play in your dramas? I mean, films always are trying to move forward, and narrative is always stuck in, in the present and future, but how the past comes into play? Well, first of all, we don't have a character mm -hmm. unless we know our past. I mean, just think, how would you know your David Schwartz if you didn't <laughs> remember your past. So I think those questions of, uh, what did you say about the earlier films? Well, that, that they all have characters who, who have, um, are trying to either escape their parents. Yeah, they're trying to escape, see, the, escape past. the past. Yeah. It sort of led naturally yeah. to this. Because uh, me and Martin had done up, up through uh, Simple Men, I mean, and some work after that, some of my favorite characters, uh, some of my favorite work with an actor. And, uh, but we were getting sick of working with each other, I think, a little <laughs> bit. Um, you know, just ambitious to work in other ways, you know, on his part a lot more than on mine. And uh, so we said, okay, let's make one more film because I want to do something really difficult. <laughs> let's start with this premise. 
you play somebody who has amnesia, you have no past. Because you see, this is the, the thing that most actors will do when they're developing a character. Mm. They'll, and you have to give them this. Uh, you know, they'll just go home and they'll make up a whole past history of the mm -hmm. character. And it's the, the soil out of which they start forming their character. So it was a little like uh, gym class. <laughs> I just said, all right, let's no past. Let's start from scratch and see mm -hmm. what you can do. And um, it was hard. It was, and it's very vulnerable, too, I think, for uh, Martin because every single tiny decision that Martin makes as an actor in the confines of the film contribute to his building of his character. He has no past to draw on, so he can only draw on his, uh, the experience, the, what he sees, what he hears. Uh, so it was a really um, challenging mm -hmm. way to do it. The, the major areas of authorship in film are um, you know, first writing and then directing, um, composing music, and editing, of course. And you're, since you really control all these areas in your films. I just wanted to ask, you know, which you think are the most important or how you feel about these different stages? I mean, Hitchcock is somebody who said that the film is basically over once it's written. So, um, in terms of writing, directing, composing. Uh -huh. Well, I try not to distinguish. Mm -hmm. You know, I try to just think of the writing, the directing, and the editing all as of the same process that's all making a film. And the comp composition to the music composition, which I consider part of the editing. Mm -hmm. You know, no single part of it should be autonomous. Mm -hmm. The script isn't literature. It's a blueprint for the painting that you're going to do. In all these areas, there's always, um, especially in your work, a, um, a distillation process and an, and an attempt to get to the core of things and the essentials. Um, your screenplays are, are you know, incredibly lean and, and every aspect of these areas. So could you talk about what, what this process is like? I mean, you, you, after seeing Simple Men, you talked about, what, um, about all the things you would cut out of the film along the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think the, the screenplays appear a lot more lean as they're published because that's the as-produced <laughs> screenplay. <laughs> I, I do cut a lot out. I don't know. It's just the exercise of taste and sensibility. I have certain you know, aesthetic prejudices. But mm -hmm. see, something, it's like composing music. You, know, you just hear something doesn't... There are too many notes in this phrase. Mm -hmm. There are too many words in this interchange. There's, for me, I, mean, I just try to get rid of everything that doesn't contribute. What I'm trying to contribute mm -hmm. to is different from scene to scene as well. And then do you, do you have the feeling that there's um, like only one right way to do a scene? I mean, there are directors like uh, Bresson, certainly, uh, Lubitsch um, or Hitchcock, where you feel like there's only one possible what, you know, place to put the camera, one possible mm -hmm. way to cut the film. And there, on the other hand, are directors like Altman who seem to be catching life as it goes on. So. Mm -hmm. No, I don't think there's... I mean, it just depends mm -hmm. on the person. Mm -hmm. I, I do believe that each person, if they work enough and are you know, conscientious about it uh, and honest, will admit after a certain point that they like to see things in a particular way. Mm -hmm. They like to show things in a particular way. Right now, I feel like I know how I like to see things, but 
I did at college too, and, and it's <laughs> totally different. So you change. Um, I don't think there's one right way. Because most of the time, I think what makes a scene interesting is the combination of the, what's being said, what's being done, and the interpretation. Mm-hmm. More and more, it's interpretation of, of things that is interesting to me. You know, like subject matter, what the story's about isn't really that interesting to me anymore. I mean, I, I'm interested in how certain certain subject matter, whatever it is, is, uh, is interpreted. Um, that's what, you know, I like that it's two short projects a little, I think, mm-hmm. because they, they were just handed to me. They just mm-hmm. said, they didn't give me a script, they just said, uh, make something about New York. You know, <laughs> it's got to be ten minutes long in video. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a, a, a real, like, balance in your films between a, a very, like, close observation of, of life and how people act and how they behave and then the fiction side, which is that people do things and say things in your films that are very movie-like that they wouldn't do in life. So what, is the, what does true fiction mean to you, which is the name of your production company? <laughs> uh, true fiction, the term true fiction is something I wrote down when I was at Purchase. At a particular time at Purchase, I was really knee-deep in Vim Vendor's Aramavakian mm-hmm. And John Gardner, the novelist. Mm-hmm. Uh, all three of them, from different perspectives, were talking about the same thing. It's about fiction. And Venders uh, had said in a, an interview about Paris, Texas, that he found it dishonest to write the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Because how would he know, really, what the end of the movie would be? Sure, you've got a general idea of the situation, but and even the characters, but those characters are going to be played by real human beings who, over the course of time, you really discover uh, that character is no longer just a character, but an amalgam of the character as written and the actor. And that has got to be able to change your interpretation at the end. I like that. I like that kind of talk. (laughs) <laughs> uh, because, I mean, it means he takes, as I try to, you know, uh, take fiction very seriously um, because it's, it's a way of being attentive to the world. John Gardner was talking about the same thing, and he, he said that there comes a point when the making of fiction, I'm paraphrasing him now, but uh, the making of fiction becomes an exercise in humility, that you... There comes a point where even though you've started this situation, you've invented some characters, but every step those characters take define that character. And the more steps they take, the less control you have over what's really going to happen. I mean, if you really want to be honest and make fiction that's grounded in character and is uh, interested in taking a look and asking some hard questions about what people are really like, so he said this humility thing, and, and vendors had talked about honesty, and, uh, and 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 Aram talked all the time about you know lying in class. <laughs> you know, you look at a picture that you made last weekend, and you're showing, you cut it into the film. And he says that's such bullshit. <laughs> you don't believe that at all. This is uh, you're just trying to finish this film. You're mm-hmm. just trying to make 
this have a nice ending because you have this preconceived idea about what the film <laughs> is and how it should end. But you know, nothing that's happened in the first 20 minutes of your half-hour film would lead me, as open-minded as I am, I'm speaking as Aaron Falkin <laughs> right now, uh, would lead me to believe that these characters would resolve the situation this way. So it had to be true. And so that's where true fiction comes from. As you once said, true fiction could also be called real bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, okay, well. And it is very hard. <laughs> if we can bring up the Haslights a bit, um, let's take some questions from the audience. I was wondering if someone who made short films, uh, what your opinion or what your comments on uh, the controversy at the Academy Awards last year? He's asking about as a person who's, who continues to make short films. Uh, what was my reaction to the controversy at the Academy Awards last year when there was some question of abolishing the short film category? Um, yeah, I think that's just stupid. <laughs> um, although I was not aware of the controversy. I don't watch the Academy Awards. Anymore. It's more of a technical question, but how do you think sound should function and how does money, having more of it, change that? Yeah, I take sound really very seriously the more I learn about it. Listen, I was standing in the back before listening to the, the clips of the three films, and I forgot how thin the sound of The Unbelievable Truth was. That was eight tracks, you know, whereas uh, Truss probably got up to about 15 tracks at any given point, and then Amateur is a 24-track mix. And, the, and we had more time. I mixed The Unbelievable Truth in one day. <laughs> and, uh, and I spent the better part of a month with uh, Amateur. So it is important. As, uh, like, it can get crazy, too. You know, sound should be part and parcel of... I try not to get into the habit of thinking, like, I have a film and I'm going to put some sound on it. The movie and the sound are all together, and you're the, deal with it as one thing. That's how I try to deal with it. Uh, and money changes your ability to make choices. I mean, there are whole parts of Amateur that only have two tracks. That's just the recording that we made, you know, the production recording, we call it when we're shooting, and maybe some birds or something. Uh, and I like that a lot. Um, with the shorter work I've been doing, whether it's videos like we watched before or um, you know, shot film projects. I'm working with less and less tracks and trying to make that production recording as, you know, as dynamic as possible. And that, yeah. Okay, right down here. I enjoy your dialogue style very much. It's very vivid. Uh, I'm wondering, are you influenced at all by people like David Mamet? Uh, well, I read David Mamet now because <laughs> people used to say that a lot. Oh. <laughs> and uh, I have to admit, I was not well read. Um, I think now that I know Pinter and Mamet well, uh, yeah, I mean, I wasn't actually influenced, but I could see where we all fit into a common vein, which comes from Beckett. The word is uh, just really important. Okay, right, right here. Um, Back. It's kind of a two-prong question. Um, a two-prong question. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, I've noticed that characters in your films always 
it recurs that each of them walks around with a book. And I was wondering what personal experiences made you make that aesthetic artistic choice. And then I guess the second part of my question is whether you realize that Eric Rover does that a lot in a lot of his movies. Oh, yeah. Amateur has books, too. <laughs> books are just a part of my life, you know, and um, ideas and uh, articulation is something that, uh, well, I mean, I would say that my frustration in growing up where I grew up had to do with the fact that there wasn't a book in sight ever. <laughs> uh, you know, so I needed those, you know, I needed them, you know. You know, reading, passing on ideas. To me, that's a real part of, uh, of life, even though it's very often thought of as being like a very unnaturalistic thing. But uh, the world I moved through, there are books all over the place. Uh, today, my favorite Godard film is, uh, it changes all the time. I mean, I think, I try not to think that way anyway, because I think it's very important, especially with an artist of his stature, to not think about an individual, but to think of the body of work. But everything from about the mid-80s to this point, I think, uh, is, is great. Uh, we will be showing Hellas pour moi, yeah. which is, this, but um, also at the public starting this week, right. they're showing uh, JLG by JLG which is a portrait film, a uh, self-portrait film he made. And also Alemannia, New... F 90, right. Germany, it's Year Zero, 1990, yeah. uh, which is also a great piece. Okay, right down here. How much of an idea do you begin with when you start thinking of your next film, and then how much does that change from what you started with to what you finally end up with? Well, I saw that probably a handful of ideas, and they change constantly. You know, they start changing less the closer you get to making the film. But in the writing, it's, you know, can go on for months and months changing. You know, what I, what I think I'm writing today at the early stages of writing two months from now, you know, might not even exist, but it'll get me to something else. Do you start with titles? You have such elemental titles, you know, that are so evocative. So do those come at the beginning of the... No, they come out through it. Mm -hmm. I tend, my notebook tends to be a little cryptic that way. <laughs> and also, you know, I was an art student at one time, more weighted towards the graphic arts end than the fine arts. So I like to look at words on a page uh, and if they can mean more than one thing. And that's better. Okay, we can uh, take one more question here, and then we're going to take it out in the lobby. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, right here. Who are some of my favorite directors right now? Well, I mean, Godard, obviously. Uh, vendors. Uh, they tend to be like a sort of older brother group, you know, <laughs> one generation or two. You like Jim Jarmusch a lot. Yeah. They compare me to Jim. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I like Jim's, Jim Jarmusch's films. I just, you know, I don't really see the connection. Although he was a huge encouragement, you know. I got out of film school in 1984, which is when his first film, uh, a very individual kind of film, you know, was a success. And it was really... Um, 
encouraging for a lot of us. Spike Lee, too, the same year, these two really popular, I mean, really successful, but idiosyncratic films uh, were a big hit. So uh, that helped a lot of us get the gumption to continue. Please join us again tomorrow afternoon, and um, we'll be out in the lobby in just a minute. But thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.